Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Course, though, we are absolutely delighted to have Jeff Sweat launch his debut YA novel, Mayfly! And this guy really knows how to do it right, so we have him in conversation with one of Skylight's own, Christine Blackburn. Uh, Christine Blackburn often hosts events for us here at Skylight, and she is a charming and skilled interviewer, producer, and writer. Um, You're bound to love what you hear, and if you want to hear more, you can check out her weekly podcast at Storyworthy. Uh, Jeff Sweat has an impressive narrative career as a tech journalist, a marketing consultant, and um, when you see the way the story is told, you understand that like he does understand how to write the story, how to tell the story, and how to shape the story in a way that is so accessible, and you can feel that depth of knowledge behind behind this book. Um, Mayfly, though, is his first book. And it's something special for us here at Skylight to be able to launch a book and have a party like this, and we're really proud of that. Um, The book has already gotten incredibly well-reviewed, both in the official reviewers and in the personal readers who have all gotten advanced copies. Maybe some of you have yourselves. Um, I looked at that Goodreads page. My goodness. Um, This book has been called Mythological, Admirable, Tense, Interesting, Easy, fun, scary, dangerous, exciting, complex, memorable, fast-paced, big, vivid, unexpected, epic, terrific, funny, and refreshingly different. Let's please give a warm round of applause. All right. Can you guys hear me? You know what? I'm just going to sit. It's like the karaoke jeans. I'm not quite sure what to do with the microphone unless, it's, unless there's a song in front of me. Um, so, wow. This is pretty amazing, guys. Um, uh, with every book that you have, I think you get a ton of people who invest themselves in that, who were responsible for this to come. Um, and, and, I, and I'm looking around, and I don't think it's um, a stretch to say that I feel like a lot of people given so much of themselves to help this book come to life. And you're here among us. Um, Another funny thing about this book, this book has no acknowledgments in it currently. Somehow during the the printing process, none of us forgot to check that that had made it through. And so I wanted to spend a tiny bit longer, if you guys don't mind, to just to thank some people who were really instrumental in getting us to where we are, if that's cool with you. Um, and, and again, most of you are here in the audience. So, um, and, and the acknowledgments will come in in the next printings, which makes this printing the super valuable printing that does not have the thank yous in it. So, you know, hold on to that. Um, eBay it if you want, I'm not going to be offended. All right, so for a few, few people, um, Matt and Sylvia Rodriguez, I don't know where you are in there our best friends and have been our strong supporters in every part of our lives. Um, it, if I suspect half of West Covina is here and it's thanks to those guys. They've, they've, they've been huge advocates. In fact, Sylvia said to her friends, do you really want to miss out on the next JK Rowling? And um, she said it pretty seriously, so I think, I think it was a, a great uh, honor. Matt stepped up and has not only provided me advice early on, but um, has basically been one of our project managers to get some of the crazy marketing activities for Mayfly out in the world. Um, and uh, uh, he wrote a song for the book um, and convinced his friend to come over and film, and turn it into a video. Um, just as importantly, he taught me how to swear in Spanish. So <laughs> that's how this book feels so natural. Um, I have to thank my team at Mr. Sweat, my, my own company. They became the Mayfly team for a pretty good chunk of time. And uh, they pretty admirably turned from PR people into book marketers. And they've been there for every part of the marketing campaign. Um, and actually, some of them are here tonight. Hey, guys, Mr. Sweat. So we've got Laura, Laura Lauren, uh, Joy, and Aaron. 
four of them are four of them are here of our of our of our distributed team. Um, I called in a lot of favors to do this. Probably every ad agency or vendor or client that I've ever worked with that 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 could possibly help me. I asked, and so we have people like Giphy who helped create. They created their first ever promo campaign for for a book, which we're going to be coming out with soon. Um, I had my clients uh, North, who who did all this strategy for me, created the awesome flyer that some of you saw, uh, and then um, another group of uh, friends at, at my client Barclay created this crazy quest that uh, we'll be showing you a little bit later on tonight. Um, you know, um, it's 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 pretty it's pretty insane. I'm so grateful. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the people who have helped make this. Um, Stephen King used to, pretty famously says, you know, to write with the door closed and edit with the door open. And actually, I disagree with Steve on this one. Um, I've had people weighing in throughout as we've made this book, and um, and it's it's really helped me. Um, first and foremost, uh, my friend Vanessa McGrady was one of my first people who who um, uh, reviewed it. Um, Vanessa and I only worked three months together at a, at, at a utility, but we've stayed and we bonded over a love of uh, drunken Irish karaoke. Um, and uh, she was the one who literally almost pinned her, our agent down to make her read this. And that is why um, Mayfly happened. Um, and then, of course, our agent turned around and sold the, the manuscript in seven days, which was pretty cool. Um, so thank you. I think there's, I will never be able to quite repay that. Um, so I want to call out specifically um, Rachel, Le Rachel Bronwyn, Leela Simon, and Joy Allen, who are my co-founders in our study hall, which is our writers group. Um, they literally have um, workshopped every bit of Mayfly um, and have just been super supportive. Um, I, I, there's a ton more here from the writers group, and I won't be able to call all of you out, but you know. I feel like we're going to be writing articles about this writing group someday. Yeah, they're that impossibly talented, which I'm saying just to piss off Rachel, because she hates that word, but we're, everyone really is. Um, finally, um, I wanted to call out the really supportive YA community here in LA, um, who um, been there almost from the moment we kind of identified each other as writers. And, and I always I, I say, I say not, not uh, inaccurately, that every YA author here in LA knows every other YA author I know, and, but always through different paths. And it's this amazing, like, overlapping circles. And such good people. I'm inspired by you, and I'm really thankful for you. Um, my most important thanks goes to my wife, Sunny, who... <laughs> Sunny is... Sunny is... My first and my best reader. My first and my best everything. Um, she claims not to be a writer, but she helped me with everything from plot holes to copy edits. We spent a lot of time arguing over words um, until I finally agreed to let her change things sometimes, and she agreed to let me ignore her. Um, Ever only once in a while. She designed a lot of the cool stuff you see around here, the signs and the bookmarks and all that kind of stuff. Um, if nothing else, she's given us production values. Um, and during that first, that most critical year, she gave me an hour between the kids' bedtime and our own to put the words on paper. And that's how Mayfly came to be. Finally, thankful to my kids with their giant hearts and their crazy hormones, um, they inspired me to write the children of Mayfly. They, uh, you guys may have seen at one point, they created their own covers of Mayfly, which was the best Father's Day gift ever. Um, mostly it showed me that if the events of Mayfly ever took place, if kids really did rule the world, it would be in pretty good hands. So, Jackson, Mikey, and Charlotte, you are in Mayfly, whether you wanted to be or not. <laughs> I love you. Um, so that's my thank yous, and thank you for everyone who's, who's here. It means so much. Um, so, I think we're going to talk, go into, I'm going to read a chapter, um, just to set this up a little bit. Um, some of you know all of this, although maybe there may be a version, maybe a version you're not quite sure. Um, but this, this scene, just to set it up, is the first time that Gemma, our, our main character, has left her village, the Hollywood, um, kind of on her own. 
It's the day of her birthday. It's the day she turns 15 and the day she's expected to become a mama, which is the, the most important thing in her village and something she really doesn't want to be. Um, and so she takes off down the hill with this boy that, she, that she's always been in love with, but she lives in a world where where you don't get to talk about love. You don't live long enough to fall in love with someone. Like You, you just have to make sure that the society survives. And so, so she's coping with all of this. They go down to a building they've always wanted to explore, which is the Capitol Records building, if you guys know it. They call it the Stack. Um, and um, they um, are being extra cautious because they are potentially... Um, being followed by a group of kids called the Last Lifers, who are feral kids, basically, who have given up on life, and because they they know they're going to die soon, they realize that nothing matters and that they can that kind of they can do whatever they want. And so that's the setup for this. We're going to go into this chapter, and it is right after after Gemma and her guy Apple, who is the head of the Muscle, the Warriors. Um, right after they kiss for the very first time. I would show you that, but we're going to have to approximate it. So here we go. And by the way, I'm trying to think of the last time I wrote a story, but it was definitely to put a child to sleep. So, um, so this is probably not all entirely young kid friendly. I think it mostly is, and I'll, I'll, I picked this chapter on person, purpose, but also try not to put you to sleep. So anyway, all right, here we go. Gemma hadn't imagined his look from before, the one that left her open and feeling naked in the center of the room because he's looking at her that way again and then he's kissing her, brushing her lips softly while she holds completely still. She pulls back. Why did you never ask me to roll? Gemma says. I never asked no one to roll, he says. And she realized that she's never seen him with anyone else. But why? Because I, I feel something different for you. Before she can show the way that cuts, he says, something, something good, something like the parents. No one told me how to show it. Oh, she says, spinning that thought in her mind, but still this time kissing him back, this time allowing herself to feel it, the cracked skin of his lips. She's kissed lots of boys, all the girls have, but all that is gone with those lips. The two of them are kissing as if they're trying to uncover the truth of each other under that skin. The sun interrupts them, its rays pushing under the window, covering as it, sw as it swells onto the horizon. It's time, Apple says, and they reluctantly pull apart. A little more. We could see so much more higher, she says, a pleading note. She knows they'll never be back, and maybe Apple sees that too, because he doesn't argue, just climbs. Is that why he left with her today? Because they're running out of time? The other floors are more of the same, and when the sun finally sets, she's ready to go at the next flight of stairs. They reach what must have been the top of the tower and crack the door. Unlike the others, it's dark inside. Apple chokes and backs into Amel. You smell that, he whispers. Yes, oh God, she does. It smells like shit, she hisses. Shit and something else, blood and death and something wrong. And as the darkness of the door resolves, she sees dim shapes moving, clothes rustling, something waking up. Something they woke. Gemma is bounding down the steps before she knows it, trusting the railing that slides under hand, her hand in the blackness. She barely hears Apple behind her, both of them knowing the only thing that matters is speed. Death whispers past them. Really they are not? It doesn't matter. At any moment, a knife will pierce her back. She can feel it between her shoulder blades. But then she hears the shouts, hears the voice of the last lifers, and knows a quick knife is more than she could hope for. They burst through the greasy white room and into the street. Home, Gemma says, attempting to sound casual. Yeah, it's probably dinner time, Apple says, as calmly as he can for someone running for his life. When they reach the underpass, though, Apple steers her away from it, even though the voices pour out of the stack into the streets. That way's home, she says. Look in the shadows, Apple says. And then Gemma looks at the underpass the way Apple does and sees an elbow and then an arm and then an axe. Then she sees something more. A sharp flash from the overpass of the 101. A long tube of something and Gemma screams, Gun! A gun? How did the last lifers get a gun? And they dive behind a low wall before something loud bites into the bricks like an unseen chisel. The last lifers are coming at them from the south and the east. They're blocking the way home. That means that for now, home is to the north and west. 
With me, she says, and she pulls Apple to the north side of the street, the uphill side as they push west. She looks over her shoulder at one of the last lifers, and she knows that scowl into the blood and the grime, knows it from her own village. Andy, she pants to Apple. That's Andy. That was Andy then. And that's why the last lifers are so terrible. They're not demons like the Palos. They're brothers and sisters. Andy once gave her blackberries that he found bursting through a car overwhelmed by bramble. Now he has a spear raised toward her, and if Gemma stopped to greet him, he would bury it in her guts and twist. That and worse before she dies. There are more behind Andy, still visible in the thickening dark. Seven last lifers at least, more than you'd ever find together at once. The packs don't usually get that big because they kill one another off. They run in packs like coyotes, but coyotes don't tear one another's hearts out. These animals do. They'll idly attack one another if they don't have other prey. Gemma knows where to go now, remembering a long-gone gather. They had found another way home, and here it is, so fast that they almost run past it. She tacks hard to the right, almost losing Apple and maybe losing the last lifers through a long, narrow alley and then up a flight of stairs. At the top, the stairs are flanked by walls, and they crouch behind them. Apple pulls back his bow and looks down the steps. He can't see over the wall as she ducks, only watches him unleash an arrow, and hears a scream below. Six. Apple notches a new arrow, but he must have missed because he quickly fires another before there's a gurgle, closer than before. There's a quiet as the last lifers regroup. I've never seen you work before, she says. It's nice to look at. It's nice to be looked at, he says, with a little smile. But you're a better kisser than the other muscle. Now what? Well, the rest are going to charge at once. How you know, she asks. They used a baller strategy down on the street, he says. Now, all they got left is crazy. Ahead of them in the dark, away from the dark the staircase, is a tangle of streets, narrow and twisting. If she barely knows her way through, she has to hope the last lifers, maddened as they are by the end, will know even less. She twists left and right, hoping that the circles they're running will take them north to the next underpass through the 101. Behind them, they hear the screams of the last lifers, closer than they should be. The street drops them back down the hill, and they pull up at the, at the bottom, lungs burning, the underpass not where it should be. They're in sort of a glade, a place where the parents used to park their cars, and there are still a few of them, overgrown until they're just ivy-covered mounds. But there is no 101. That's not right, Gemma says. Beyond the glade is a street, and they race to it, hoping to get their bearings. Gemma spies the letters then as she sees all of it at once. The first of the last lifers pouring off the hill, the 101 farther than she thought, too far to reach now, and the forbidden gate in front of them. They're at the bowl, one of the gathering places of the parents. It's the place all the stories warn about, and they're going to have to enter it if they want to live. She can only hope that whatever forces guided the last lifers, maybe the evil in the bowl will be enough to throw it back. She can't move, even though she knows she must. Apple pulls her shoulders toward him, looks at her with clear eyes. Time to meet our ghosts, he says. Somehow, his gentleness makes her feet budge, where the last lifer couldn't, and they're past the gate and into the terror that seems to close in on them. None of the holy would have ever entered the bowl, even though they can see it from the ridge. It's not that they don't dare, although they certainly do not. It's that every taboo, every confusing, conflicting legend agrees on this. Stay out of the bowl. It should smell, she thinks. She thought it would smell of death and worse. But even as she wonders how long the smell lasts, she does sniff something, the scent of the pines that line their path. And she thinks it's far more beautiful than she could have imagined, with ponderosas thick and green and pine needles up to her ankles. But then a final turn and it opens up before her and it is so much worse. It is a bowl. She sees immediately how it gets its name, like a giant scoop from the hillside. Seats climb the walls of the bowl. At the bottom is a platform and a kind of shelter, like a clamshell. She wouldn't have even thought of how the parents used it. Religion? Games? Except the old stories said they used to sing there. The Holywood Bowl, they used to call it. It doesn't matter, though, because now the parents use it in another way. Everywhere she looks are bodies, draped over chairs, tossed roughly into walkways, piled seven deep, tangled arm over leg, over head, the bowl filled with them. The bodies are bigger than the children are. There's no flesh on them anymore. Gemma feels horror rising in her throat, but also a sort of uh, also a sort of awe. This is the place where the future came to its end. 
found the parents, Apple says. There is nowhere to hide among the bones and smiling skulls. They climb midway up the bowl before they hear the shrieks of the last lifers. Gemma looks around, panicked, for some kind of hole. Help me, she whispers, to whatever God will hear. Crunches of bones at the bottom, the crackling cries growing louder. Help us, she says, the fear rising. Show us where to hide. And, and something does. There's a buzz in her ears, like the beginning of a headache. It's like her head can't quite grab onto the sound, and the disconnect hurts her. The sound recedes. In the silence, a blue haze floats down over the bowl, like scattered ash at first, then brighter and brighter, like stars. She worries that the last lifers will see it, but even Apple doesn't seem to notice it. The haze swirls in clouds around her until it takes the form of children. I'll let you look at that for a second. That's the haze. Um, it's showing me the last lifers about to attack, she realizes. Not in perfect images. The edges of the last lifers are blurry, as if the haze doesn't know how to draw bodies. The features are sketched out in dots. She saw a painting once in a grand, long-gone house under a giant banyan tree. It was of a girl, a dancer, made of little dabs of paint. When Gemma looked at it up close, she saw only the dots and an impression of the shape. When she stepped back, she saw the girl. The haze looks like that kind of painting, vague and blurry if she looks at it right, but falling into shape if she looks at it out of the corner of her eye. The last lifer shapes. The last lifer shapes in the haze come toward her. When she looks back up the hill this time, she sees a passageway under the bones. One of the benches has been dug out by a coyote, a burrow in the bones. It's invisible to her real eyes, but somehow the haze shows her a way in. In the haze, the last lifer figures seem to walk right past it without noticing. Gemma hesitates. Is it safe? Then she thinks. You asked for help from the gods. It'd be rude not to take it. She leads Apple straight to where the burrow should be. She moves two skulls and it's there. Under a long bench, under the bodies, there is a pocket big enough to hold them both. Gemma crawls under, followed by Apple. Did you see that? She says, but Apple looks at her blankly. She shakes her head, but a loud bone crack below stops her next sentence. Apple slides up behind her as she lies on her side, staring out into the bones. The smell of ancient death settles upon them. She whispers quietly to ward off the panic. This ain't what I planned for my birthday, she says. The parents used to bar bury their dead, but when the end came, they died so quickly that there was no one left to bury them. All the children can do is drag their parents into the bowl and leave them there to rot. Now they burn their dead the day they die. Now, she thinks, we're all orphans. The last lifers are supposed to be afraid of the dark because the gap between worlds is more is narrow then. They're supposed to be afraid of deaths and ghosts and anything that can steal their souls quicker. But these last lifers don't act like that. They move as if ghosts aren't real, smashing through the bowl, angry and sure. She can hear their calls as they divide and scale the sides of the bowl. They sound wild, like lions or bears, but neither. A bear never talked or thought or loved like they did. So in those cries are everything lost and abandoned. Gemma finds something strange pushing aside the fear. Sadness for Andy, the ten-year-old who loved the long-gone cars. The thirteen-year-old who dove off the bare wall first. She breathes hard and sharp. An apple mistakes for panic. He wraps his arm around her waist threads his leg between hers until their hips and shoulders and breath match, and her head nestles under his chin. For the first time since she ran down the stack, she feels a flash of calm. When she was seven, she hid from the olders, and the others looked for her. Apple found her under a table, crying. Instead of pulling her out, he put his finger to his lips and climbed under. Gemma is aware of every place where Apple's skin touches hers. He feels it, too. Can't be feeling this here among all this death with people hunting us, she thinks. And yet, why not? Isn't all of it part of surviving? She can see windows of the sky through the lattice of bones before her, but can't see any, down any deeper into the bowl. Someone is two rows down, stomping the skeletons as if they're dry wood. The cracks shoot through the still air. Footsteps fall on the row. She can't help shaking until Apple's stillness draws the shivers out of her. Three people just like in the haze. The feet crunch closer, 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 in front of her eyes, and then they're past. She doesn't breathe. Then they fade away. 
the buzz comes back, and then the haze does suddenly, as if it's just popping in for something I forgot to tell her. In the dots of the haze, she could see Andy's face, those empty eyes. The haze can't quite draw his features, but she recognizes the pain in him. Is it real? Is Andy coming back for them? I think they're gone, Apple says, starting to move. Wait, she says, and they do. They wait long moments, listening for the sounds. Maybe Apple was right, but a smaller set of footsteps start again toward them. She feels Apple tends to reach for his machete, but he can't swing it properly while he's wrapped around Gemma. Her fingers reach for her hatchet, but they're not quite there, and she doesn't know if she could bear to swing it. And then a foot smashes away the bones in her face, and it's Andy's face, but not. Andy, lost in eyes, rimmed with coal, reaching in to tear them apart. Andy, Apple says calmly, probably seeing that Andy doesn't have room to swing his spear under the bench. It, it's us, your friends. Andy hesitates for a moment, life flashing through his eyes before flickering out. And Gemma swings a hatchet, buries it deep into his skull. He collapses without a whimper, with a face as clear and confused as a baby. Gemma pulls out the hatchet, wipes it off, carefully. But her hands shake so much that she's worried she'll cut yourself, herself. Andy, Andy, Andy. They huddle close together in silence, hoping that no one heard Andy fall. Gemma shivers so hard she's afraid the bones will rattle signals to the last life first. An apple pulls her closer to calm her. We ain't meant for this, he whispers. You're almost 17, she says. How you keep living? You just gotta remember what it's like to be alive. They listen for the crashes as the last lifers move to the top of the bowl. If the last lifers knew Andy, if they remembered him, they don't look for him. Just when she's shaking with cold and exhaustion, Apple pushes with his thigh. Out. They make their way down through the bowl, the only children to visit the parents. Jeff Sweat, you guys. Wow. Jeff Sweat. Oh my gosh. I will never look, I will never be able to go to the Hollywood Bowl and not see that image. What is wrong with you? What is happening? Uh, I actually feel like I have ruined it for quite a few people. So, wow. Fortunately, we're not very cultured, so it doesn't affect us. So, Jeff, really, this world that you have created, I have to tell you, it's, it's a young, it's you know, a YA book, but it is full on for adults as well. I mean, to me, this reads like a Stephen King, like The Stand meets Lord of the Flies. It is so exciting, and the pace, it just keeps picking up and picking up. So tell us, where did this world come from? Um, well, I think, uh, I think it started up from growing in, uh, up in America in the 1980s. Um, we were all pretty sure the world was going to end. We talked about World War III all the time. I don't think we knew that the Cold War was almost over. And uh, so I think it became a obsession of my friends and certainly of me to start thinking about how would the world end? And if we know it's going to end anyway, what's the most interesting way for it to do it? Um, and so I knew when I really got serious about actually writing a book that that was one of the things that I wanted to have be part of that. I thought that was such a fascinating thing. Um, and a couple things happened. Um, I saw the movie Children of Men, which um, you guys probably would see as a pretty clear influence on this. What year was that, Children of Men? I ten-ish years. Does anyone want anyone know better than that? me? Okay, two thousand six. Two thousand six. Okay, like so that? more than that. Yeah. So that was kind of like it's kind of stuck in my head. The other one was a, a graphic novel series called Why the Last Man, which I think a lot of you guys know if you know that. And what was interesting was they showed just what would happen if you took even a section of the pop population away. It doesn't have to be like this, like even the subtle changes or not so subtle changes in, in the makeup of our world really shifted things. Mm -hmm. And the last thing that was really interesting is I, right around the time as I was try trying to think about this, I read a study that talked about how there were two main population booms for society in, in, in kind of pre- historic times before before you know records were taken first and maybe most, one of the most obvious one was when agriculture was invented and they could actually stay in one place and and not be hunters and gatherers um, the second one and this was the one that really kind of blew my mind was when humans became old enough to have grandparents and that was actually only about 30 years old like but once they lived to be 30 years old 
it changed everything for humanity because suddenly not only did you have people to help take care of the kids to make sure they survived, but um, you had a memory. You had people who remembered where the, where the safe water was, which plants were poisonous or not. You had impulse control. You, you, could, you could not always, you know, um, get into a fight. You know, you, you could actually stick together and, you know, and collectively build without killing each other. Um, Meaning that you knew there was consequence. Yeah. So, or, or so that there was like a, there could be a continuum, so that yeah. there could be generations could follow one another. Yep. So you actually had a chance to grow and build. And so I thought, what would happen if you took that away? Like, wh like what would our society look if we lost that sort of that impulse control that comes with only comes with age, and you know we've lost sort of the memory that, right. that we have as we get older. So in this book, everybody dies at 18. 17, yeah. At 17. So at 17 years old, that's it. You're, you're dead. So you have these communities of different types of people. So you have the last lifers, like you talked about. You have mm -hmm. the cannibals, the mamas. Mm -hmm. and, and so how did you decide to make it a matriarchal society? Sure. So the main, the main society, the Angelinos, are this group of interconnected people who live mostly through the Hollywood Hills going out to Malibu. By the way, this book is in Spanglish, as it were. It, it's, in, it's in a lot of different kind of remnants of language. Spanish is a big part of it. Um, there's a little bit of Korean, actually. There's a lot of, like, kind of Hollywood culture, the mm -hmm. way that we talk now, that's sort of filtered through. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's kind of my best guess at what might, we might still have if we didn't have written language. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but the... the in terms of this group of people, why I decided they, they, they are matriarchy. They, because women are right? I think it's a good... Oh, did I say yeah. that? No. I found that to be true. No. Um, okay. <laughs> um, but I was trying to think of like what would make for a stable society, and you know, especially in, in um, uh, when you're dealing with, with teenage hormones. And one of the ways that, that, that we, I decided to is I was curious what would happen if... If if the girls were in control, they're young, you know, because the younger there's there's the kind of like the power and aggression is more similar. That they in this world they basically let the boys stay until they cause problems, and then they kick them out. Then they got to go. You know so what I'm they, saying? They get exiled, <laughs> and so it's it's a pretty powerful, um, uh, I guess, force for stability. Which is really cool. I like that part. Um, I think the flip side of that is it's a little bit like having the world run by the mean girls in middle school. So, like, there's sort of like, there's a trade-off. I think it's generally a better setup than uh, than what it would be otherwise. But well, so you should give an example of that because you know I read the book. I love the book. Uh, but w what do you mean by that? That the, that the women would, in other words. The mamas, because they're the ones that are giving birth to continue on, because they're going to die at mm -hmm. 17. Mm -hmm. So the mamas, uh, they get impregnated, and then they can do away with... Give us an example. Well, I think um, relationships don't matter as much. And so if you're talking about kind of why, they're, why they tend to assert dominance, is because um, the, the girls are really, really crucial to the success of the village and to humanity. Um, and in fact, they have, a, they have a, a saying, which is, don't leave the Hollywood empty, which is their, their village. And so that becomes the most important thing. And therefore, they have a certain power um, because life is a superpower. You know, they, they control that. And so that's, that's sort of how they, um, one of the reasons why they're able to remain dominant in this mm -hmm. society. Okay, so let's talk about the fact that you know, this book, you put so much uh, on, young on, on the young people in terms of responsibility and, you know, what they can achieve. You obviously believe in them, and you dedicate this book. You say, to the kids who hold the world together, whether they ask to hold the world or not. And I have to tell you, it reminds me of the part... Yeah, you can clap for that. I think that's a good thing to clap for, Yeah. Well, I mean, it just reminds me of this Parkland thing, you know, this whole thing that recently happened in Parkland, and now these kids are in this position of, like, they, they have to make it better. I mean, we, we, they, there has to be hope there. Mm -hmm. So you obviously give these kids a lot of power. Yeah, I mean, I think I have um, a lot of respect for what teens can do. And this is, um, as a father of teens, um, you'd think I would 
maybe be like maybe have less. I don't know, but I've been so <laughs> impressed. Um, there, like a couple things I want to talk about with this. But I think one of them is when I thought about this book, um, I thought about what it was like for me as a teenager, and how for almost every person in this room, I suspect your teenage years have been the hardest years of your life. Um, you know, and I, obviously other things happen that are crazy, but and, and and have had it in my life. But teens are still the hardest, and it's partly because you're just you just don't know how to cope with this. And I see this with my kids, who are such wonderful kids, who are so empathetic and compassionate, and there are just moments when they just can't hold it together because it's hard. Like you don't know how to deal with these things. So I thought, what would happen if we put the the world in the hands of people who are just trying, kids who are just trying to hold their own lives together. And so that's kind of what I started thinking about. And, you know, I wrote that dedication before Parkland. Um, I wrote Mayfly as kind of a metaphor of all these things that we ask children to kind of take care of for us. You know, we, for kids who have had to deal with financial uncertainty, who've had basically to raise their siblings, who've had to overcome all these mistakes that their parents have made before them. And we, and, and I think and again, it was meant to be a metaphor. And then um, Parkland happened, and, and it was it, it became pretty real. And what I was impressed with, and what I hoped I got through in the book, was that it's not always going to be easy. Like it's hard. It's this, again, this is hard for teens. But, but man, like when they come through, they're so they come through with such grace and strength. It's pretty inspiring, and I think that's what I wanted to capture in this book. That's exciting. I love that. And you do have three children, Jackson, Mikey, and Charlotte, and they're all here. And I wanted to ask them a question. Where well, there you guys are. What kind of what kind of stories did your father read you at bedtime? What did he read you scary stories or But did he ever read like his own stories to you guys? I think, honestly, the fact that I wrote was kind of a mystery to all of them until they actually saw it in front of Really? <laughs> so in this book, you guys, he is one of the cool things you do, Jeff, is you use like the street signs, right? So there's the 101 and the 110 and the 405. And then Gemma ends up, they're trying to find how this disease started. So they head south to San Diego, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so, and so uh, tell me, the, for the source of the disease. Mm-hmm. Right, and so the very end of the book, I'm not going to give anything away, but the end of the book, man, you set it up completely for the second book. Yeah, there, 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 there may be a second book. No, there is. There's uh, so a second book. Um, There's so a second book, you guys. One of the, one of the stupider things you can do as an author is agree to deliver book two the week before you're supposed to launch book one. <laughs> um, so it's actually not quite done yet, but um, it is. There's about. 90,000 words on paper. It's wow. another week or so away. Um, That's amazing. And it's uh, the working title right now is called Scorpion. Scorpio. Where did Mayfly come from? So it was came from the fact that these kids um, live a whole life basically as nymphs, I guess, whatever, as larvae, whatever you call it. And, and their day as an adult is the the last day of their lives. So yeah. it's, it was basically, it's meant to be. And these kids, by the way, when they die, they're fine one minute, and then we're done. Mm-hmm. And they're just, that's it. So there's no, they, they go through a process that they that they call the betterment, which, um, it's a really weird disease where it heals you, and the moment before you die is the best you'll ever feel. So. Um, I'd like that. Yeah, right. I would oh, say, actually, it's right. not based on any personal experiences now that I think about it, but... It's not a, an auto-eroticism now. No, ex- no. no, exactly. That. that was, I don't know where that came from. Let me ask you about your writing style, because uh-huh. you had mentioned to me at one point, it's a little Raymond Chandler-ish in terms of, like, your visuals and the way you talk about Southern, Calif- Southern California. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, a um, few things. I think the most important thing about me for writing is... Um, is my time as a journalist. Um, and in fact, I see one of my fellow colleagues from my very first ma- first publication, um, Fritz. Um, but we, you know, I wrote, I don't know, gosh, four articles a day, every day of the week, for forever. About what? 
boring stuff. But what did you write for? Uh, I, wrote, I wrote about technology. It was a magazine called Information Week. And, um, a lot of folks find that interesting. <laughs> I know. And that was weird is that I actually started to care about it. So, um, and that's when I knew it was time to leave. Um, interesting. So, but what happens, though, I think, as a journalist is you, you stop getting precious about what you put on the paper. You know it's going to get torn apart no matter what. Yeah. So you just kind of get there. In fact, actually, my very first conversation with my editor um, when, when I, after I sold Mayfly was I, I explained to her my background and I said, look, you can give me any edit you want. I'm never going to be offended. You can say it any way you want. I'm never going to be offended. I said, however, pretty comfortable with what I put on the page. So the edit either makes it better or it's wrong. <laughs> Wow. And I'm okay telling you that. And that's, that's the way we've kind of operated. And, but I do feel like that's been really important. But I think the other part of it, journalism is that it's made me really careful about whatever words I put on the page. Exactly. I was just going to say that because you have such a specific choice of words. I happen to notice that in this book, there aren't that many adverbs. What do you have against modifying verbs? <laughs> Um, it's probably, honestly, as much as compulsion as anything else. <laughs> but the reality is, is I feel like adverbs take the place of the verb you should have put there. Um, that yeah. is so good, right? And you guys, did you hear that? The adverb takes the place of the verb it should have been there. Yeah. That's huge. So find the right verbs. Everything else kind of takes care of itself. Um, I actually, Amazing. I suspect if you looked through the entire book, you might find 20 adverbs. I think that's a little high, but you know, if anyone wants to ever check me, I, I feel that's totally cool too. Yeah, don't think I'm not going to be checking oh, I know, out. You're, don't no, even you're think I'm not. <laughs> uh, this is so exciting. Listen, I see this book, honestly, I see it made into a video game. I see it into a feature film. I see it like a series, you know, of, th th that it is enjoyed by not only teenagers and tweenies, but definitely adults. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you, so you're excited. You've got to be feeling pretty I good am. about this, yeah? Yeah, we, there's a, honestly a lot that I think is potential here, and um, we're in the right town for it. Yes, you are. And um, Scorpio, most of it is written. Scorpion, I Scorpion, excuse me. Sorry, okay. Scorpio is probably my friend Romina's book, but I won't steal that from her. <laughs> She's got all the signs covered. And so, yeah, let's talk about this marketing that you've got going on, because uh, we've got so much happening. We all have pins on. You've noticed that. Mm -hmm. And and now, what what else is going on? Sure. So, I think most authors in this room would, would vouch for me here that increasingly it's on writers to do their own marketing, right? I mean, I don't think anyone has felt that to be much different. Um... And so I knew that going in, and I feel like when you put something together, you have to give it every shot you have. Um, the, the thing that I had going for me, which I am totally taking as a gift, is I do PR for ad agencies. And um, I've managed to build up a few favors over the years. And so we're, we're um, I called them in. Um, and so we're actually, we have not launched it yet. It's still about another week or so away. But there are a few things that I thought would be cool to show you because um, I, I think it's stuff that I've never seen in a book campaign before. And, and, and I look at a lot of like video campaign, video game campaigns and movie campaigns and stuff like that. And I feel like this is kind of right up there. So that image that you're seeing overhead is, was created by one of my um, ad agency partners um, and it's the beginning of this of this scavenger hunt if you will um, I think it's kind of a there's a lot more to it than that but basically it's a, an online a quest that basically mirrors what happens in Mayfly both in the real world and and online and so um, there's gonna be a lot of social content um, if you guys later on you get these bookmarks that come up and there's a snapchat ghosts that you can click on and you can actually get the very first clue for all of this. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What's happening? Is this like, you know, when they chase those, was it Pokemon they chased around? Is that what we're doing? They're, well, hopefully better than that, but... Um, <laughs> No, I think it's, there's some elements. That's to, there's, there's certain, like there's radio signals that you can only hear from certain parts in L.A. There's actual buried treasure that you have to dig up. There's, there's going to be like modified little books where you can decode um, messages within Mayfly. So. It sounds like a fun like family activity as well as, you know, maybe a nice date. You know, like an L.A. date. Yeah, you know, exactly. Let's go Mayfly. Come on, you guys. So I'll show you a few things that can, can come with it. Just so, um, And I'm not a Windows person, so I apologize. Well, I mean, I don't know why I have to apologize for Windows. But, um, but let me show you really quickly a few of the things we're working on. Um, one of them 
is we worked with um, Giphy.com. See? Any Giphy people here? Do they make it tonight? Okay, that's fine. Then I'll still be nice to them because it was cool. Um, they worked with us on their first ever promotion for a book. They've never done one before. And, um, and we just kind of started talking and they said, we've always wanted to promote a book. And I said, it's funny, I have a book. And so we started, we started working together. And they're creating a number of, like, of, of reaction GIFs for that, which if I can find them, um, they're pretty cool. Oh, so they, this is one idea they had, was they're creating kind of a QVC channel for post-apocalyptic items. Well, sure. So, you know, an, an, uh, an old battered iPhone that can be used for, like, a mirror or spearheads, that kind of stuff. It's pretty important. Um, this is our, our friend Joy giving us a little bit of a reaction. This is Joy enthralled. Um, this is OMG. Um, this is the QVC for a hatchet, which has well, sure. all sorts of uses. You didn't know, you can use it for toast. Um, and then one more, I think, I think I got that one. Okay, cool. So we got that. And then, um, I wanted to show you a couple of other things. So this is the website that we're starting for the scavenger hunt. It has all these places you can enter secret codes, um, and you get to explore all parts of LA. Um, the, um, I'll show you one thing that we're kind of doing, which is we're creating post-apocalyptic versions of LA landmarks in VR. Um, and this is just, like, this is just a little tidbit of it, but it, we're basically trying to show, a big part of this book is the kids trying to de decode LA. Like, they don't, they, they're in these amazing buildings. They don't understand what they were for. They don't, they can't read. Um, and so we're trying to show this the way they would see it. And then we thought it'd be really fun to build in clues that they can follow and that you can follow to get there. So that's going to be that's going to be part of that. But this will be all like the idea is you look at it, it looks just like the Disney Hall, and then all of a sudden, as you as you go through, you see it the way our our heroes did. And so all this stuff can be found at Mayfly.com. No. Uh, so actually, some of this is going to come out over time. So this is. I'm giving you a sneak peek, but um, mayflybook.com is the place for the scavenger hunt, and then jeffsweatbooks.com is the place for kind of everything else. And you're very good on Instagram, I will say that. Um, you know, the kids, they keep me. Okay, so here's what's going to happen, you guys. We've got a really special performance coming up of the song with songwriter Matt Rodriguez. Where are you, Matt? Come over here, Matt. Let's talk to you for a second. And then uh, Jeff's daughter is going to sing us a lovely song, the, the song from Mayflower. Should we do Mayfly? Should we do Mayfly? questions first? Mayfly, yeah. We're going to do questions, at, but Matt first, right? Uh, yeah, we're going to go to Matt. We're going to do Matt first. No, actually, let's do audience questions Not Matt. first. Okay, so we're going to go to audience questions first, and then Matt, then the song, and then the signing. So it's all very exciting. Do you guys have any questions for Jeff Sweat? Oh my God! Well, spoilers. Should I tell her what happens? Yeah. Um, for some of the characters, I won't say which ones because that would give some things away. Um, they actually do really start to understand what caused the end, what caused this giant plague, um, and you know, as as always happens in in fiction, they think they found everything they want, and then everything is not what they thought it would be, and so they're trying to deal with that. Um, I, I would say this is a particularly big book for the character Little Man, if some of you know him. And this will be, this, he's the scorpion of the title of book two. Uh, yeah, Caden. That is a really good question. All right, so the question is, is there's sort of two schools of thought in, in um, writing. You're either a plotter, an outliner, or you're a pantser, seat of your pantser. And I would say Stephen King is the most obvious example of someone who detests outlines. Um, but I would also say he's Stephen King. Um, and honestly, some of the books could have used an outline. So, um, or, or an editor. I don't know. Tommy what, uh, sorry. <laughs> I feel like there's nothing to be lost by going after Stephen King, right? Um, um, but no, I mean, actually, 
she, he and I share the same rule about adverbs. But um, I am more of a, of a plotter. And it, but what I would say is I typically do a broad outline of the whole book um, just so I kind of know where it's going. Um, then I spend a lot of time thinking about what it is my characters want and what would really mess up their lives and start putting that in. Um, a lot of times that initial outline never gets looked at again, honestly. Like once I, it's sort of enough to have it in my brain and then I go. But this is the crucial thing. Um, the thing that I found to be the craziest, most successful part of, of my writing process was to actually to write every day. And what would happen is I would write a scene for the day and then I would put it down, grab my dog, go for a walk. And I always try to make sure that I could work in my walk. I could see the LA skyline downtown. For some reason, that really kind of just like, I kind of just I hit some creative button that let me think about this world. And what would happen is the next day's scene would just sort of like flow into my head, like just while I was walking. And so typically what I would then do is I would dictate it to myself in a voice note, or I would quickly get home and I would write it down. But I would say that's, that's the biggest thing. It's just you got to keep writing because the story, that way the story never leaves you. And, you know, I think a lot of times creativity really kind of lives on the margins. It doesn't, it doesn't live on that screen in front of you. It's just going to kind of hit you kind of from the side when you're not quite looking. So that's what I would say to watch out for. Yeah, Sarah. Well, I mean, um, I've lost 20 pounds since Christmas. <laughs> I have not changed my diet at all. Um, it's, yeah, thanks, stress and disease. Um, but um, I, I think it's really hard. I really do. And I kind of like, when people would talk about how hard their second, book, second books were, I would sort of say, well, yeah, that's because you're, whatever, you're obsessed about what people think. And then I realized I was obsessed with what people thought. Um, and, um, but beyond that, like there was a serious period of time for about a, for a month where um, I literally couldn't think of anything. Like I, not, not just in this, but in life. Like I felt like I could only react to things. I couldn't have no creative thought. And that was partly because of not feeling great in like feeling ill and, and all those kind of things. Um, once I really though kind of like kind of settled into it and just started asking myself, Again, what would make my what my characters want? What would they do? It all came together pretty quickly. And and the crazy thing was, they had tons of this written, but not in any shape where I would ever share with anyone. Um, like probably seventy five thousand words. And um, two weeks ago, I only had three thousand words, like sequentially at the beginning of the book that I would have felt comfortable showing my publisher. And I sat down on Saturday morning and just started slamming through it. And um, a week later, I had 57,000 words. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, some of it was just edited, but honestly, there were a few like five to 7,000 word days, which I don't recommend um, unless you've got people to dic take dictation for you. <laughs> so, so it was crazy, but I'm feeling really good about where it goes. And I feel like it's kind of deeper and richer and it you know, kind of like deals with some of my rookie mistakes as an well, author. What's so interesting about that is it does sound like a lot of words, but yet you are so sparse in your writing. Like every word counts. So you're already sparse like in your head, in your edit, before I think it even gets on the page. It does. I probably obsess a little bit, a little bit more about the, 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 the feel of it. Um, and that, again, probably comes from journalism, from the idea of like just not wanting to like get reamed for a bad draft, you know? There's so no fluff. There's typically not. And it's, yeah, every word is thought through. It's pretty clean. Um, and so I probably spend a little more time on that first draft. I will say, on these times when I'm just, like, churning out, like, these 5,000-word days, 7,000-word day, the writing is, like, it's almost as good as the days when I obsess over everything. So I think... You know, that's something that I would love to let go a little bit more, hmm. like self-editing. Any other questions, you guys? Yeah. The language that's a good question. Um, you know, one of the things that always drove me a little crazy about 
kind of things set in the future, kind of these post-apocalyptic worlds. So everyone still sort of talks the way they would as if they've had written language for the past hundred years. And there's been so many things have shown that as soon as written language is gone, everything just devolves. You know, and even like from our time between Shakespeare, English is so much different. And so I did specifically try to think a lot about how they would view the world and what might have changed. And that's influences on from, you know, like Spanish and Korean coming in. But also just like for example, I use the word skyplane instead of airplane. Um, same basic idea, but they've never seen an airplane, so like, or like never seen one fly. So like, they for certain things I feel like would just fade out of out of view. And um, I also think I, I noticed like certain trends. The way we are, we're already shortening things. Observatory was one where that's a really complicated word, and I can't still can't say it fully. Um, so I. Observatory was easier for me, um, and I think observatory exactly right. Observatory, red leather, yellow leather. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, um, and then um, and I think um, the other one was uh, medicine, which I shortened to medicine because I thought like that's a lot of syllables for for people to hold on for a hundred years. <laughs> yeah. Hey. You know, that's. Um, I I wish that I had been smart enough to anticipate the uh, Stranger Things stuff. Um, it, it's it's not. But what I think what's interesting about that that video that you saw is, um, first of all, this haze that she sees. I'll give you a little teeny tip if you haven't read the book. It is connected to this this plague, the end that is wiping everybody out. Um, and I wanted to include kind of a supernatural element in this. When she talked about like Lord of Flies meets the stand, that was one of the things that jumped out was this, that there, that, that seemed to spark this sort of supernatural battle that, that, um, that wouldn't maybe have happened otherwise. Um, and so what I would say is this was, this is a way for like the supernatural to appear in a way that ultimately you'll see is maybe not as supernatural as and, and could be explained by kind of normal phenomenon. So I think like visually it looks a lot like it. Um, I had a very talented group of designers who somehow um, just kind of imagined what it was and they did that, which was Yeah, look at that cover, cool. you guys. It's cool, right? Yeah. yeah, that's a cool cover. Okay, two more questions, you guys. Two more questions. Yeah. Oh, the one that was the kind of like screensaver type thing with the floating haze, I should say. Oh, that's right. I can show you. Yeah, you let's want. get it on, man. It is. I actually went outside and shot all of these panoramic images myself on a rented uh, tripod and camera. It was a really horrifying experience. Um, apparently, I don't. <laughs> I don't know how to use cameras anymore. Um, it, with like now, now everything's gone down to one button. But I actually went to the Hollywood Bowl and all these landmarks that took place there, and I, and I shot them. And then um, our my nephew is actually he composited them together into a panorama, like a, a VR thing, that he's now turning into this post-apocalyptic version of everything. Wow! So it's. It's a little crazy. It's pretty cool. Everything is so grassroots, you know? You have really... this. Everything in this book is organic. You. I mean, the, the whole thing. The marketing, uh, all of all of the, the posters, and all of this swag that you have. Make sure everybody gets a button. Mm -hmm. One Please. more question. Anybody else? Yeah. I mean, Caden. Um, so I've wanted to be a writer since I was six years old. And I would say I spent a tremendous amount of that time not writing. Um, and, I, and I think there's no substitute for it. Like, um, I have so many people come to me and say, oh my gosh, I'm, tell me about your book. I have this great idea for a book. And then what always happens is they just haven't started writing it. And, um, and I think there's this feeling that you're not, not going to be ready for it. You know? You're too young for it. The very first book I tried to write, I was 20. Two, totally could not handle it. I was way over my head, you know, and I just stopped. But then I stopped for 20 years. Um, and, and so you got to be writing something. I would say start out with something you can manage. Start with, if it's short stories, if that's your thing, it's great. The thing that I think is amazing is if you just sat on the corner and watched people walk by and write three paragraph scenes about what you just saw. These little, like, amazing little short 
flashes of stories. That was one of the best things I ever did. Um, Who told you to do that? That was my um, drunken fiction writing teacher at Columbia. He was like, like literally, like he was your, he was like your stereotype of like the, the drunken writing professor at, at Columbia. But, um, <laughs> but like, it, but he was really smart, and that was the thing. He, he'd send us on the subway and just be like, "Go, come back with three scenes," and we would. Hmm. And and I honestly think like getting yourself out of the picture for a while and learning how to observe the world around you is a huge gift. Just like look around, there's stories everywhere. There's drama that you can kind of see in these little moments, and you know, just record them. Try to try to like try to make them into something cool. Jeff Sweat, you guys. Okay, let's hear a little music. Matt Rodriguez, you're coming up. Come on up, Matt. And you guys, introducing Charlotte Sweat. Charlotte! All right, which side do you want, buddy? Which side is best for you? Oh, uh, whatever she wants. Um, explain a little bit while they're setting up. So try to So quick setup. I'm not going to read the scene, but I'm sorry. This is impossible for me to do standing. They don't make it for giants. Um, so the setup for this song, um, first of all, is that it was. I mean, I'm a pretty loud. I, like I wrote it as a poem, basically. I don't know a thing about music, and so um, so my friend Matt actually agreed to turn, turn it into a song, and he did an amazing job. But the setup for it is that this is a world where all written language has gone away. And so song has become the main way of teaching and, and learning. And our um, character lady sings this inside Disney Hall. So if you can imagine those like big wooden um, um, walls and the beautiful acoustics where everything's kind of hanging there. Um, and she goes in there and she starts singing partly just to kind of feel like, hear what it sounds like. But um, it becomes this moment where she sings about the things that she's lost. She's just left her village, the Hollywood. She's just realized that the thing that she wanted most in the world, which is to become a mama, might not happen. And so she sings about this, this nursery rhyme that they sing, which is about how um, the, the only things that you leave behind are your kids. And so this is a song the lady sings to this kid that she may have. And so Charlotte is going to sing it. Um, actually, I'm going to I'm going to let Matt talk for one second about this because I think this is a cool, cool bit. But um, Matt, um, come on over here. Tell us a little bit about what musically you were thinking about as you wrote this. Okay. Um, uh, musically, when I read the book, uh, you know, obviously we've covered it a bit. You've heard Jeff read it. It's super engaging. It gives you this entire world. So in the scene, that Jess describes, I, I try to imagine what music would be like that would survive, um, you know, if you, especially in the hands of children. It would have to be lyrical, it would have to be somewhat nursery rhyme-ish, you know. I mean, I can't imagine the, the latest Riri hit would survive 150 years into the future. So, you know, things like uh, old McDonald rhymes and, you know, Mother Goose type stuff. Uh, you know, and in my head when I when I started putting something together and just reading it, I I heard Charlotte's voice. I've spent a lot of time at Jeff's house, and uh, you know, you hear her playing video games and stuff, and you hear the, this kind of sweet child voice. And uh, the scene in the book is just so filled with just this, this gravitas uh, from a child, and that's just kind of what struck me. So I asked Jeff, "Hey, you want me to?" throw that to a song and he said sure and so that's kind of what led to it. It was, it was, I mean I, I asked him too because I knew he could do a great job. Um, so thanks Matt and thanks Charlotte. I'm going to let you take it away.
I could be a farmer, a tailor, a doctor, a fighter, a lover. None of it matters. All of me in this world is you. You will not know me, no one will tell me, the steps that you take, the hearts that collapse, all of me in this world is you, so stay with me child, drive back the wild the world has no life so stay with me listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.